I found my voice most authentically by allowing the various parts of my black identity to show. So that's incorporate some pigeon, incorporate some, some hip hop, yes. incorporate some Afrobeats, incorporate slang. Welcome to the Social Archive. Poetry is one art form that possesses a level of palpability that I feel you don't always see in other art forms. To me, poets are interpreters, capable of translating nuances in the world that are difficult to grasp and serving them on a platter that perfectly sums up the depth of our experiences, even some of the most mundane ones, in a really beautiful way. Now, I have the honor of properly introducing you guys to my friend, Kweku Abimbala, a poet. Kweku, poet, future Pulitzer Prize winner. Hey, I receive it. <laughs> Minister yes. of Enjoyment, <laughs> avid try. dancer, lecturer, uh, lover boy. <laughs> Am I missing anything? Um, professor, soon, soon to be professor in August. Oh, period. Yeah, professor. Yeah, push and pee. In this episode, we speak on how he uses poetry as an avenue for better understanding different aspects of his black identity. He also is the author of the book, Saltwater Demands a Psalm, an anthology on parts of his Black identity that he finds sacred. For example, the stank face. I was asked earlier today by someone in the audience what my favorite poem was, <laughs> and I couldn't tell them. This is one of my favorite poems to read, and this is Stank Face. Oh, Stank Face, your origin begins with rhythm. Like the first ever jam session, somewhere beneath a tendrilled canopy and near brackish water, where best we worship. Someone hits a clean lick on the drums, accentuating the oomph of a dancer's thumping, which then compels the flutist to conjure a riff and complete this eclipse. And the nigga on the drums, knowing she's made something cosmic, raises her cheeks, flares her nostrils, protrudes her lips, the triangle of her features screams to her fellow players, yo, you seen the shit I just put down? Then the xylophone is seeing her stank face, flashes his own. You thought that was hot. Keep this. <laughs> then bra went off. In the same night, the world witnessed its first two stank faces. Oh, stank face, because you're so communicable, I wonder if you're less expression and more spirit. Benevolent hate, you're so easily possessed. Your hosts relinquish their regular speech in exchange for something prolonged, violated. Hey, yo, you're, oh, stank face. Thank you for allowing driveway dunkers to feel like MJ when he drives with his left, Euro steps in the paint, whirls and melds his ballful fist with the basket. Oh, stank face. Thank you for possessing twerkers when they throw it back and bewitch the twerk catcher to also yield to the stank. Oh, stank face, thank you for allowing me to utilize the full girth of my black nose and gulp the funk of all I love. For any ode, the stank face is first an ode to black noses. Oh, stank face, thank you also for allowing me to savor the stench of my littlest victories. I wake up, I unsilk my hair, my twist out was looking right, I dress, my Ankara is popping. My niggas and my loves bless my timeline with memes and Twitter antics. 
I hold myself. A spot of sun dogs my nose as Spotify Rewind cues up Control by Malik Berry, bathing me in summer 16 serenity. I shocky, I shaku, I stank face. Thank you. This audio was from about a month ago where Kwaku, along with his friends Brian John Fee and Monet Cooper, two amazing poets, were showcasing some of their work. Before attending the poetry reading, I'm walking through the bookstore where it's being held, and my eyes immediately fix on a book called Wahala by Nikki May. For those that don't know what Wahala means, it's a pidgin word used primarily amongst West Africans, meaning problem. See, the meaning of the word isn't really as important as the book's presence in the bookstore in this very white city of Ann Arbor, Michigan. It sat there, natural, amongst books by Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, Susan Collins, belonging, giving me permission to fully take up space as a West African woman. One theme that sticks out in Kwaku's book is water. See, water fully occupies whatever space that it resides in. And as an anthology on the Black experience, I think of his book as giving his Blackness permission to fully reside and occupy whatever space that he's in. And this idea is very evident in our conversation. But I think it's important to first understand how he even came into the art of writing, because it's very apparent that it's central to his evolution as a poet. Like every African child, I had two options, doctor, Mm -hmm. engineer, but my whole life, I liked writing. So when I got to undergrad, I was like, okay, I'll go into business. I'll do business. So then, like, my friends, okay, good, go to business school. And, like, mm-hmm. I, I got into a pretty good school and, yeah. had, and had, like, the number one, number two undergrad business um, school. So then I'm taking these business classes. I'm like, okay, this is boring. And I take one class on James Baldwin, taught by a black professor, yes. Dr. Maurice Wallace. Mm-hmm. Changed my life. Really? I literally was sitting in my, this was like some stats class, like stats 2000, da da da, for like business school. And yeah. in that class, I dropped my business major. Really? It was the dumbest thing I ever did. In, 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 in like hindsight, I'm like, that was very bold. That's, that's very bold. What did you tell your parents? So they didn't find out till like graduation. Disappointing all of our ancestors. Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> I told them, I'm like, hey guys, so plot twist. <laughs> I was like, surprise. And then my mom, she was like, so you don't want to have a real career? I was like, ooh. 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 But then I was like, you know Wait, what? Wait, so what were you telling them when you were going home? That's really funny. Um, I, I switched to public policy. And then I was like, oh, I'm double majoring in English and public policy. Mm. But then I quietly dropped public policy mm. and just did English and black studies. Mm. And I told them kind of like my last semester of like undergrad. And mm. it was like kind of chaotic. But I was like, guess what? I'll be a professor. And then they were like, okay, that's fine. So then I, went, I got it into grad school, mm-hmm. did the whole poetry thing. And then I applied to be a professor of poetry and kitty writing like earlier this year. And then I got the job last, last week, Tuesday. Yeah. Yay. Oh, congrats. Because I know you're a lecturer. So I'm listening to your story mm-hmm. and you, you didn't really get into writing, writing like that until yeah. college. Yeah. The way that you write, though, I would assume that you've been doing it your whole life. Really? Yeah. It's like I never took it seriously because like my mom, because like that's the thing, like when we first moved to the U.S., we mm-hmm. moved to... California first, then Oklahoma, of all places. Oklahoma. And that's when I was in, like, first grade, second grade in, like, Oklahoma. 
so then I I loved writing stories, mm-hmm. but I would just do it like for fun. And then my teacher, I'll never forget her, Miss Menching. She would shout out Miss Menching. Shout out Miss If I, I'm, I'm trying to find her to say thank you. Okay. All these years, because I'm like, she really encouraged me to like write, but like I would write these stories and she let me read them during show and tell for like Aww. the whole class. And she would like she would like um, help me type them up, and then she'll print them, and then I would I would do the um, art, and then she'll laminate them. I would just copy from like a different book and like change it a little bit but yeah so i, I would write for fun and mm-hmm. like i never wrote anything serious serious really mm. until like college yeah okay. so i enjoyed words i enjoyed stories mm-hmm. i i loved movies but mm-hmm. it's just like i didn't think it was possible because like i think that my parents would always encourage our dreams in a way but mm-hmm. like the dreams were like always geared towards like a career not necessarily towards like a creative passion yeah i mean you're kind of doing it you're trying to do it as a career right yeah, now. Yeah, now Good. is the attempt, and thankfully, the, the, it's it's been it's been difficult at times, but it's been fun. No, I, I feel think, that. Yeah, I feel that. So, how did you come into your style as a poet? Mm, I guess that's a great question. That's a great question. I think that my style is changing. Really? Yes, because one thing that that I show my creative writing students is the first poem I ever wrote. In this poem. I sound like a white man because really? I thought because I thought that's what poetry sounded like because we had just been reading Shakespeare and shit. Yes. So, oh my god, I remember there was some lines because I like it was very short. It was like I was I was a six I was seventeen year old angsty, <laughs> and it was like it was like nighttime and I was looking at at the stars at, and it was like in my house in Virginia yeah. they, like we have like woods so I was like illuminate the foreground constellate the back something 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 what light yawn shines and it was just it was just so bad. It was so bad, and I think that's like indicative of the fact that I was only writing that because like mm-hmm. that was the only poetry that I'd been exper- that I'd been exposed to. Most kids in U.S. school systems, if you get the privilege of like reading poetry, you're reading Shakespeare, mm-hmm. you read some Lord Byron, but no real modern poets. Mm. I didn't know people still wrote poetry until I went to college. Wow. I thought like it was like a dead sort of art wow. art form. So my style developed from reading black writers like i'll never forget my first ever african-american literature class was the the bottom class my first ever african-american um poetry class i was exposed to the work of melvin dixon okay and he has this poem called tour guide uh il degore senegal where like it's his experience going on a tour at one of the slave castles in senegal and that poem changed my life where's he from he was african-american and his poetry like it just does so well to dig through the layers of black history mm. and implicate so many like layers of his own identity because he's he's an american with privilege to travel now but he's going to a place where his ancestors were likely taken from mm-hmm. and is he he handles the that's a that mind. tension so well <laughs> yeah yeah so it's like being exposed to like those types of voices and my one like like one of my favorite poetry professors encouraged me to get an anthology mm. and my first one was the oxford anthology of african poetry edited by um oh god who edited it arnold rampersand he's lit he's he's a scholar and he's a really good scholar of like black literature and that book i got like secondhand and it was so cheap and i would read it every night like my bible so it exposed me to so many black poets from like way back in the day mm-hmm. talking like Phyllis Wheatley and shit to like Helene Johnson obviously like Langston Hughes yeah. County Cullen going through the line to like Audre Lorde mm-hmm. and Lucille Clifton even to modern day people like Aracellus Gourmet Danette Smith etc so like that just put me on and when I was exposed to black voices I was like okay how can I 
a child of the diaspora who's mm-hmm. grown up in West Africa, in the UK, and in the US, mm-hmm. how does my voice fit? And I think that I found my voice most authentically by allowing the various parts of my black identity to show. Yes. So that's incorporate some pigeon, incorporate some some hip hop, yes. incorporate some Afrobeats, incorporate slang. Yes. You know, and all of and that. And that is very evident throughout I did try the poetry <laughs> book. I don't even read poetry quickly. Yeah. You, got me reading, <laughs> you got me over here reading poetry <laughs> and enjoying it. Oh my God, thank you. My favorite poem mm-hmm. in your book is the... Um, I don't remember what it's called, but mm. it starts off with you like burning hair. Oh, that's burning something. box braids. Burning like, box braids. Yep, yep. What you know about box braids? This is a real story. That's why I joke like I'm not very creative. I just have good memories. My aunt, she's she still is a hairdresser. She's finna braid my hair like when I go back home. But that's what, like that was my job. She would do my sister's hair for free, and then I would always just come, and then I would burn the tips, mm-hmm. and then she would put them in the water. And I thought it was so cool. Like it was just this thing that like I wanted to be a part of. Yeah, you know, because I'm like, oh, like I had to keep my hair short. Yeah, like, like my whole life. So I was like, oh, this is like interesting. And then like she would just ask me to do because like obviously braiding takes forever. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, can you help? I was like, of course. So every time my sister would, would get the hair done. I'd be the one to just burn the tips. And I liked it because it was just random. It's like, we're doing this to preserve a type of culture in Oklahoma. Burning box braids on East and 94th, Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is my job to burn the tips, to singe them with a 99 cent Texaco lighter and dunk each lock into a bowl of tap water. The flame licks each braid, sputtering before Auntie Marie blows out each little fire, obliging me to uphold my end in the production line of Yazzie's still tender, still kinky hair. This act, me sitting cross-legged on our grainy carpet, sprucing Yazzie's hair, Yazzie just above me on her favorite lime green stool, Auntie seated upright on our yard sale couch just above Yaz, whispering little secrets to her I will never quite know, I will never quite hear. All the while, a mix of Nkuto, coconut, and blue magic sugars the sticky fumes of burning synthetic hair. Auntie recites Yazi's favorite Kweku Anansi story yet again revealing the tale's climax just as she tightens the final braid. We practice a kind of rebellion in strange lands. Her hands marry, birth, and bury, slicked in pedigree, spinning psalms, spells, and peoples, plating trinity. In our quiet, hands fluid and flames still speak. You have a, an interesting relationship with womanhood mm-hmm. that I feel mm-hmm. like we don't always see. It seems like the women yeah. in your life are really are strong figures. They live. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, just talk to me a little bit more yeah. about that. I think that it's, 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 it's interesting. I think that a lot of it is because, like, I'm, I'm, I'm the only boy. Really? How yes. many sisters? Only two sisters. Okay. Yeah, but, like, my aunt lived with us for a while. So, mm-hmm. usually it was, like, we're outnumbered. Mm-hmm. And also because, like, growing up, my dad was usually at work most of the time. So it's like I'll be at home with my mom, my sister, and stuff, and like that's like where a lot of that 
I feel like I almost was like behind the scenes. Like, oh, mm. so this is what they talk about. This okay. <laughs> it's like a flyer on the wall. Literally. With amongst women. Yeah. It's like you're getting a you're getting an insight that insight. a lot of men probably aren't getting. Honestly though, and I feel like it's funny because like my dad was similar, but except mm. he's the youngest and he had two older sisters. Okay. Yeah. And like on my dad's side, like my cousins were all male. So like when I was with them, like then I was oh like boys, boys. <laughs> but like when I'm at home, it's like, oh it's like it's like I'm, I'm more like women dominating the space. But like mm-hmm. my mom and my aunt were so loving and so caring and just so inspirational that I was like they taught me what it meant to care. They taught me what it meant to show up and mm-hmm. they taught me how to converse. Cause I feel mm-hmm. like the book also tries to deconstruct African mass masculinity at least like the parts that aren't as um healthy mm. you know and i feel like that's also where i'm at now I'm like, okay how can i start to unlearn some of the um problematic sort of gender stereotypes that i grew up with mm. you know even in like a very welcoming west african household right like welcoming loving etc but like there's still some gender roles that are, are problematic it was just like having just intimate moments with them whether it's through hair whether it was through like, because like my, my mom also loves to dance. Yeah. So it's like, whether it's like through hair. Quickly is dance. a dancer. Ah, <laughs> if you've ever been at any African event in Detroit <laughs> and you see some guy in the middle of every dance floor, <laughs> you've probably seen Kwaku. <laughs> it's me, sweating. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I know mm. you as a. I guess a member of yes. what we call the enjoyment crew. Bruh, bruh. Big enjoyment. <laughs> Here yes. at the University of Michigan. Mm. Um, it's the it's kind of like a safe space mm-hmm. for um, African students on campus to ex- just live life, you know, be mm-hmm. joyful. Um, and my favorite other poem on your book is actually The Function, probably. It's like so much depends on the DJ siren. Yeah. On the yeah, The Function was fun. That's a fun one to write because I think that moving from because i went to a very white undergrad mm. and then michigan was even whiter michigan is very white it's really white very surprisingly yeah. white yeah given like, that detroit is is very black. down the street Literally. detroit is one of the blackest cities in the u.s mm-hmm. and i think that just like finding those pockets of black enjoyment they felt sacred to me a lot of the book is just an ode to the things that i find sacred mm-hmm. and black joy is one of them because having black joy in a white space you feel like a specimen mm-hmm. that's why like going out in Ann Arbor was never th- like thing that i enjoyed because like, oh like i i, I want to be in a space where i don't worry that people are just like looking at us because we look other because mm-hmm. like, i want like i want to take up space organically and mm-hmm. just like be around people that i care about you know what i'm saying yeah it's like when i discovered like <laughs> it's funny because like, i met chi chi like going to a party and it was my first party in Detroit. And it was Jerk and Jolong yeah. at the belt. And that was like four shout years out Blackito. ago. Shout, shout, shout out Blackito <laughs> on the ones and twos. Making friendships happen. But yeah, it's just like for me, Black Joy is, is like sacred. And I feel like I'm so determined to preserve that because a lot of the media that we consume that centers around Blackness, centers yeah. around Black trauma. Yeah. Which is, for me, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Because I'm like, it's one thing for Black creators to talk about trauma with nuance and it's another thing when we start to question who's the audience for this i'm like no black person enjoys just trauma over and over exactly yeah and i think my um just to talk about your point about that Mm. just the way that you will unprovoked see like let's say there's like a civil war going on Mm -hmm. in africa you'll see black bodies just laid out Mm -hmm. on the floor Mm -hmm. and they're putting that on the media as Mm -hmm. if that's normal Mm -hmm. like 
people have been desensitized to seeing black bodies mm -hmm. in that manner. Mm -hmm. They would never do that, mm -hmm. in my opinion, with other bodies. Like they would never do that with white. You will never see white bodies splayed out oh. across the ground like that, bloodied mm -hmm. as, a, as a result of like some tragic thing happening. Mm -hmm. But we've normalized black, like you said, black um, trauma. Mm -hmm. Because I discuss this a lot in my class with like virality mm. and what does it mean for us to consume these images versus what does it mean for these images to have impact, right? Because like, I think one thing I ask my students is that, for example, in the story of Emmett Till, yeah. Emmett Till's mother allowed he, his yes, image. Yes, he had an open casket. Open casket to make a point. And I think that we've reached, we, we as, a, as a society should have reached the place where we don't need to see it. To believe that this problem still exists mm -hmm. but as like you said right we've become so desensitized to it that like as we continue to experience these it's like we have to show the trauma for people to care and i'm like when do we get to a point where we have privacy mm -hmm. i think that like, that like something that like i try to continue with in my work is like black mourning should be a private experience mm -hmm. and it saddens me when a lot of the people who who the families especially they're not afforded the same privacy and a lot of the book also talks about mourning and about how we mourn especially like on from my mother's side and like the akan people of, of ghana like the, the rituals of mourning are very organized sacred sacred and it's like it's like a multiple day thing if you're from royalty it can last years you know so i think like another big part of the book is this idea of like elegizing um black american victims of police brutality in the way that we would do back home yeah right so it's that this idea like oh like even though we're separated by so many things like spirituality can be a a, a tool mm -hmm. for us to bridge the diaspora and, and like and for us to like arrive at a sort of understanding of black afterlife and yeah i think that seeing black artists interrogate these complex ideas with nuance really and mm -hmm. and like and 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 um freedom that that gives me hope yeah that gives me hope yeah yeah mm -hmm. so um so your book mm -hmm. there's a lot of themes of water yes so that kind of brings me to um do you know the Ebo landing yes oh, that's yes. that's literally the first thing that i thought Never. of mm -hmm. with your book was that an inspiration i just want to yes so, so okay cool i just want to throw that out there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I know my stuff <laughs> come on african studies yeah <laughs> No, it, it it really was. I, that was an inspiration. Solid has many inspirations. Toni Morrison yeah. is one of the biggest ones. And yes. she references that with her Song of Solomon, mm -hmm. which is the first book I read by a Black author. Toni Morrison has this line that says, water has perfect memory Ooh. and is forever trying to get back to where it was. Ooh. And that line has been just etched into my head. And I use, I, I remix it in the collection mm -hmm. a few times. Talk about this idea of like water having memory and what does it mean for us to return to water. But... The long and short of it is that I come from coastal people. So the beach is very integral to my understanding of life and culture. And then when we think about salt water and the tides and time, so it's like, okay, like you have the high tide, low tide, most times of the day, it follows the cycle of the moon. Mm -hmm. And then when I also think about salt water and fishing, it's like, that's also, especially in like Ghana, because my mom comes from the, the coast, like Cape Coast area. And for them and many other West African, like, places and, and like spaces like there's a season for fishing and there's a season to allow the fish to wait mm -hmm. and there is at least in the ancient times like it, it was a death penalty if you were fishing 
when it was supposed to be the resting period mm-hmm. because the priest wow. went. Wow. Yes. It was, it, and, and it just shows that, and like, like we joke about like black time now, but I'm like, our people were deeply concerned about time to the sense that like our, at least in Ghana, like our day names, right? Everything yeah. is the day of the week. Yes. The seasons are very much like yes. the rainy season, harvest season, et cetera. Because yes. even like in, in like Accra now, they have something called Hamawa, which is like a ban on drumming, mm. which is similar to like what they do on the coast. Basically like when after, after they plant, you can't have parties for a certain period of time because the seeds need quiet to, to like grow. So wow. there's, there's, also, there's also this idea of like- Intentionality. intentionality. It's like nature is so deeply embedded in our indigenous spiritual practices. And that's also kind of what saltwater attempts to do is like, how can we begin to honor nature as being an integral part of every facet of our life? Mm. Whether it's how we eat, how we sleep, even the type of slang that, that we use, like all of that is like deeply tied to like nature. So yeah, that's also part of the like water. And also I'm just like, fellas, water nugget, enemy, very integral to, to, to salt water as well. Oh, yeah. very cool. I don't write for a white audience. The things that I write aren't trying to change what how white people see black people. Mm. It's more so trying to change how we as black people see ourselves. Yes. And I think that one of the first and most urgent areas is through this realm of like spirituality. Mm. Because African spirituality is so demonized. Even if you take it from, like I'm a Christian woman mm-hmm. and... At the same time, I think from a historical standpoint mm-hmm. and from a um, from a traditional standpoint, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. pointing back to the roots of your people, so mm-hmm. much of African ancestry and mm-hmm. so much of African, um, so much of our history is tied to our spirituality. Yes. So much yes. of our history is tied to yes. our spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So like the the um, first thing that I that kind of opens the book is this idea of a naming ceremony, and um, for us. In Ghana, you are named after, like, on the eighth day. Cause we are too. See, and again, it's just... <laughs> You're about people. Right? And, for, and, and, and the belief is that for the first seven days, you could just be a spirit that has returned to see what's up and then mm. dip. So, like, you only consider alive after the eighth day. And then that's when you're given your soul name, which is if you're from Ghana, based on the day of your week. So, if you're Monday, Kojo, Tuesday... Kwabna or Abna, Wednesday, Kweku, mm-hmm. Kukwa, Thursday, Ya, Yao, Friday, Kofi, Afia, Saturday is, oh, what's that is, Memeda? Ama, Kwame, and then Sunday is Kwesi. All that to, 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 to say that our naming systems are tied to spirituality. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that your soul name uh, will also impact your characteristics. So, like, yes. for the collection itself, I use the naming ceremony. So instead of like, uh, I basically I give soul names to again like Black American victims of police brutality. This idea of like oh, wow. of like naming them in a way that ties them back to Africa. Yeah, because yeah. I saw that um, the Michael Brown. Yes. Yeah. What what name did you give him? You gave he because he Michael Brown is born on Monday, so he's Kojo. Just like Ghana historically was the place where many Black people were. Yes, taken, taken from not even just like Ghanaians like themselves but like yes. from all over which from were taken through films. Elmina yeah. yeah so it's just like having this naming system that's tied to Ghana is this idea of like coming back through Ghana and then finding whatever you're because like obviously there's no way for me to know mm-hmm. right the ancestry of all these individuals mm-hmm. but it is just like more of a symbolic thing that hey like 
more more likely than not, your ancestors would probably have come from from from, from this place yeah. or, or from or, or pass through pass this place through it. exactly. Yes. So like now it's like pass back. Yeah. I think that's one beautiful thing that Ghanaians do that Nigerians don't do as good a job of. Speak on it. And while there are like political mm. things attached mm-hmm. to the um, returning of mm-hmm. African Americans, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a lot of politics there's involved some tea there. as well. There's yeah, some tea. There's a lot of tea yeah. But I feel like at the end of the day, mm-hmm. just the fact that it exists, mm-hmm. um, Ghanaians welcoming with opening mm-hmm. open arms like mm-hmm. African Americans or descendants of slaves. Mm-hmm. That's such a beautiful thing. I feel that. I feel that. And I, I think that again, the politics aside, I think that mm-hmm. I think when we get more infrastructural and like safety things down, it can be a really fruitful time for us to have really important discussions as members of of the diaspora. Like what does it mean to identify with Africa when you've never visited it before? Yeah. You know? So I think yeah, it's it's a that gives me hope to give it, to thinking about the year of return that happened in 2019 and how it's kept coming back. I just don't want Ghana to be like this like commercialized place yeah. where we kind of lose the idea that okay, there's like culture here that mm-hmm. you should also be respecting and engaging with, etc. I've always always felt kind of like poetry was a little bit inaccessible. Oh, child, me too. Um, mm. And like I said, your book is one of the <laughs> first poems, poetry books that I purchased with my own money. Hey, I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> and mm. so reading it, like reading it kind of gave me the same mm. experience that you probably got from mm. reading black oh authors, oh. like reading black poets. You can't see this right now, but I'm blushing. <laughs> but um, was that the intention? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because like similar to me, like I didn't like poetry. That's like like yeah. people like I couldn't stand it. I was so tired of that Shakespeare. I was so tired. I'm like, OK, because it's like we, the audience, are forced to meet them where they are. Ooh, you know what I'm saying? That's and, life. Right. And especially like as a as a black person, if you're reading literature from like from that time period, if there's a black character, like Shakespeare, Othello, it's so funny because like why people do this game where like oh they were like oh there's some good characteristics, but ultimately Othello was killed at the end, mm. and for nothing other than the fact that the people who were around him didn't like him because he was black. This is like see like when you read the white literature, like black characters are like stereotyped and they're like one dimensional mm-hmm. and they're just like a punchline right mm. especially like huckleberry finn all these like i'm like these people were like racist you're like producing racist tropes yes of same blackness. as um to kill a mockingbird yes. for example like we read heart of darkness and heart of darkness is one of the most racist texts ever written because homie is writing about africa without, without ever having visited africa like, mm. like he, he visited later but like most of the book was written just on ideas that he had about it and i'm just like Reading the book, it wasn't until years later that like I took black studies classes, had black professors, had black, and I was like, wow, I was just being assimilated into thinking this is okay. Yes. And there's so much work that literature does to assimilate people of color into the dominant society. And if we as black writers don't start to reclaim this language Mm. and start to produce like really nuanced and impactful work that speaks against this history and speaks to our people itself. We're just gonna be producing the same type of boring, yeah. not like not even boring, but just like problematic yeah. and like borderline yeah. violent literature. So, yes, I'm grateful that you had that experience because yeah. for me, I don't find anything rewarding from making my work inaccessible. Like that, like that to me isn't what I do find rewarding is like making new things with language, and which is why I'm so drawn to like pigeon and the language of Afrobeats because like 
you can say something in pidgin that like is deeply profound profound like, even the word like day like deep d-e-y it has so many it can use it can be used in so many different ways like almost like to be but also like deeper than to be mm-hmm. and yeah i th- i find black english to be also just like more musical mm-hmm. just like the way that we slang is yeah. like very different and even a lot of our languages are tonal yes I'm struck. I'm fine for my life. Like, <laughs> I'm fine for my life trying to learn chi. But it's just like, it's good. Because I think that once you get the language and then, because the music itself too, I think that's also one of the biggest like influences of my writing. It's like growing up with like mu- musicians in, in my family. Also being a, a drummer myself. It's like, you drum? Yeah. A drum. Hey. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Period. Period. Okay, continue. <laughs> I love that. But it's like, just like that, that, that attention to rhythm is really impactful for my work and, if you listen to music, then you probably will be able to get the rhythm in like my poetry too. Because mm-hmm. like a lot of it is written to this idea of like, oh, we're going da 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 da. Hey. da, da, da. <laughs> but yes. So if you guys haven't, have you, if you guys have been hearing the, there's a lot of background activity going on right now. But that's because we're in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, you you came to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, we. Went to University of Michigan. Yes, okay. Detroit is a, is a is a black city, and to be in a space where black art is celebrated and is more accessible, mm-hmm. and the artists are still living. Artists specifically yes. love being here. Like I've met artists from um, Cali, artists mm-hmm. from uh, New York, mm-hmm. and collectively they've mm-hmm. all decided Detroit is it. It's it. And I don't, I I'm, I don't understand it maybe <laughs> because I'm not in the art scene, but I've I've met people in mm-hmm. the art scene. I've been a pe- around people in the art scene, but mm-hmm. they love it here. Yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. think one of the biggest reasons is this idea of like accessibility because to be a up and coming artist in LA or in New York is very competitive. Mm. And I feel like there's a lot of gatekeeping. Whereas in Detroit, if you meet people, I've met really popular artists who are just very genuine, who are down to put you on as long as like you're coming from like a real place, you know? And Detroit people stay here, which is very unique. Like most people who are from here, like, they care about staying here and care about contributing to the legacy that made the, their art possible. So I wear, I feel like other bigger cities have more transplants, which is fine, mm. you know, but there's a different authenticity and nuance that I think comes from having homegrown people mm-hmm. who are like determined to stay here and to keep uplifting other artists too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. So what experiences have you had like within the <sighs> art scene in Detroit? Because I know you'd be a spotlight, yes. but, you know, doing your little poetry yes, thing. Yes, yes. I think so. My favorite, my first real experience with art was the Detroit Jazz Festival. Mm-hmm. And getting to see, like, really dope artists for free was just amazing. And seeing the intergenerational crowds was really dope. Performing at different open mics in the city has been fun as well. Um, I work for a company called Inside Out, and they do a lot of poetry programming here. Mm-hmm. So whether it's, like, poetry slams or just, like, um, different, like, featured artists and when the audience members come, they can participate, they can sign up, they can do workshops. That's been really beautiful. Uh, going to Spotlight for their Sunrise events have been gorgeous too, which is actually being moved to Andy's Art in on the east side. But just like these Black communal spaces for poetry, those have really just like made me, A, they just opened my eyes to many new artists. B, they expanded my artistic community here. Mm-hmm. And C, they showed me what community, what art should look like. Wow. In the sense that, like, in the grad school scene, it's, like, more so, oh, you're doing this Structured. To, 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 to get a bag. You're doing this to graduate first, and then you're doing this to get a bag. Whereas here, it's, like, you're doing this because you have to do it. And by have to do it, it's, like, because it's tied to your creative energy. And and it's tied to your sense of self. And 
even if you quote unquote, I don't want to use the word failed, even if no one else sees it, the art is, 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 um, is worthy or important because it came from you and it's meaningful to you. Mm. So seeing artists who care less about, oh, I'm doing this to sell this I'm, and more so like, oh, I'm doing this to connect with, with my people or to connect with myself mm-hmm. changed my relationship to art and creation like as a whole. And yeah. people are drawn to that authenticity. Yes, <laughs> yes 100%. <laughs> people yes. can tell when you're just trying to do something t- that sounds good to other people. Yes. It, there's mm. no sustainability in that. Mm. Um, honestly, it's an honor mm. to be with somebody who does it well. Oh, I appreciate you. Oh, come on. <laughs> who does art well. I appreciate that. I'm very blessed to be here. Thank you for the, having me. Thank you. On the, on, on the social icon. On the social DSA. Period. Yeah. Art allows you to showcase your identity in the most authentic way. In many ways, this podcast is my way of doing that. As of April, Kwaku's book, Saltwater Demands a Psalm, is officially out and can be found on Amazon, Kindle, and I believe Bookshop. Dot org. Grab your copy if you want one. Um, as always, I'm your host, Dami, and if you made it this far, I love you. Mm-hmm.